I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. This week, amid allegations of Biden-Ukraine corruption, U.S. authorities tried to prevent U.S. opposition leader Donald Trump running at next year's presidential election. Meanwhile, the Global South prepared for South Africa's BRICS summit after the St. Petersburg-Russia-Africa summit, where a new world order was planned out. But... What of Europe? A raging war killing tens, maybe hundreds of thousands. A continent cut off from vital Russian energy by the terror attack on Nord Stream. Economic powerhouse Germany facing recession and one in five not having enough to eat tonight. Some think Europe's prospects are not good. Joining me is former IMF economist Dr David Wu. David, thanks so much for coming Hello. on. Of course, I said all that, and uh, European leaders, European media would be quick to say, hang on a minute, the Russian energy's all been replaced, no problem. The euro, as you yourself have said, people can watch your video on your uh, YouTube channel, uh, the euro's up, it's recovered all the losses, and okay, European leaders are very unpopular at home, uh, terribly unpopular, but they're having a good war. You, you beg to differ. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think in the short term, there's no question. I think, you know, Europe, at least over the last six months, has benefited from basically collapsing energy prices. And um, however, what we need to recognize is the fact that while the absolute level of energy prices have come down for Europe, the relative price has actually gone up. Okay, that is to say that today, Europe is having to basically travel further and further away to secure energy. Instead of buying basically uh, natural gas from Russia, okay, they now have to basically get it from Qatar, the US, or Algeria, okay? You know, instead of getting oil directly from Russia through the pipeline, they now have to get it from Saudi Arabia and very far away places. Instead of getting their coal from Russia, they now have to get it from South Africa and Australia. And transportation is very expensive, and the whole logistics is very expensive. As a result, if you look at natural gas price, for example, today natural gas price that German companies are paying are literally basically four times higher than what their U.S. counterparts are paying. I mean, this is a, we're talking about a continent that was not very competitive to begin with. Now they've just been given this massive competitive, basically, uh, hit. And this is why no wonder German companies, one after another, are basically like, you know, picking up and relocating. They're manufacturing to the U.S., to China, to anywhere they can access cheaper energy. Because what people need to realize is that there is no Europe without Germany. And the German economy is a manufacturing economy. And manufacturing economy, by definition, means it's basically energy-intensive industry. Especially if you look at basically German chemical industry, which is one of the main industries in Germany, BASF, the biggest chemical company in the world, actually consumes more energy, okay, per year than the whole entire nation of Denmark, okay? So from that point of view, there's no doubt. Germany's already struggling with the fact that they're behind in the production of EVs. And remember, 25% of German economy is basically making cars, <laughs> okay? And then in that industry, to begin with, they have fallen behind U.S. and China in the development of electric vehicles. On top of that, electric vehicles basically requires 25% less labor to make a car than, let's just say, a combustible engine car. So Germany's already been hit on every possible side, and now this war has dealt, I would argue, a fatal blow to the German economy. I almost feel like Germany is sleepwalking into this because of the Green Party has decided that, you know what, we want to basically get it, find a way to force Germany to, in general, just stop consuming energy altogether. 
Now, of course, what's going to happen is that all this pollution is not going to happen in China or in the U.S. You know, the whole, you really believe the global climate hypothesis, the whole planet is still going down, you know, with or without Germany. And guess what? Germany, meanwhile, is lo losing jobs left and right. So this, to me, is just absolutely idiotic. There is, I mean, Germany, it's as though that they are walking into this and committing a total economic suicide. It's unbelievable. To which, of course, uh, Anthony Blinken, the former West Exec Pentagon contractor, would say to you, what are you talking about? We'll look after Europe. We'll open all the natural gas terminals for all the lost uh, gas and we'll sell them uh, Europe the... It will replace that Russian gas with natural gas uh, to, to Europe from fracked oil, sorry, fracked natural gas in the United States. What are you talking about? This is Russian propaganda, in fact, what you're saying. Exactly. Except it's just more expensive. They're not basically, you think about this, also oil price, right? Right now, it's like, you know what? You know, Europe and the US and Japan are saying, we're going to basically pay $40 more than everybody else. To import energy because, you know, because, I mean, right now, China, India, and all the other countries that are importing oil from China basically gets a 20, $20 discount. Imagine the way, if there weren't basically this whatever sanction against Russian energy, everybody will be consuming lower energy prices. So possibly the Indians and Chinese will be paying more, but the Europeans and whatever, the Japanese will be paying less for sure. But the point here is that Europe, you know, it's the Americans. What, people, what, what the Europeans don't get it is that the Americans are not interested in the welfare of Europe. America feels that Europe owes it to the U.S. America feels like, you know what, we saved you twice. Okay, World War I, World War II. We saved you from the crutches of the Soviet Union. We have been underwriting your security for the last 50 years. And how have you paid us back? And this is how the Americans thought about when basically Merkel wanted to build basically Nord Stream 2. They thought that, wow, after everything we've done for you, you're going to basically join forces with Russia, okay? This is the reason why they had to drive a wedge. That's why this war, to a great extent, it's about basically driving a wedge by the U.S. between Europe and basically Russia. Because the U.S. already was contending with China as a competitor. U.S. clearly did not want Germany and Russia to get into bed together and also give the U.S. basically run for its money. Because what the U.S. has is very, very low-cost energy, abundance of energy. If Germany were to actually form a partnership with Russia and secure Russian energy, then there's no doubt that U.S. would have lost competitiveness. And for the U.S., there was no way the U.S. was going to take this line down. Not after all these, basically, effort and lies it's given for the protection of Europe. So from that point of view, I mean, it's completely understandable to me why the U.S. did what it did. What it doesn't make any sense to me is what the Europeans are falling for this. Can they not see things a bit more clearly? I had much higher hopes for basically Olaf Scholz than he's actually demonstrated any common sense. Well, I'll get to Nord Stream more particularly in, in a second, but clearly the Biden administration, the State Department daily press briefings run completely contrary to what you're saying. They say Europe is our partner, Europe is our, uh, you know, you look at Jens Stoltenberg at NATO, this is one big happy family, it's not competitive at all. And uh, you kind of implied in your answer there, uh, I mean, why? Would leaders in Europe be committing economic suicide? Like, are you saying Schultz, Macron, Sanchez, Meloni, Costa, Mitsotakis, Varadkar, uh, De Kroon, These leaders in Europe are idiots. You know, I, 
first of all, I, I used to think, well, this is because groupthink, right? You know, you're part of the European Union, right? Decisions are being made basically in a committee, essentially through unanimity. But I think more importantly, I think it's the fact that Europeans in the last 50 years, the whole European project was meant, designed to basically eradicate nationalism and patriotism. And what is nationalism? Nationalism is doing what is good for your people. <laughs> and the Europeans have embraced this whole idea that, you know what, you know, we want to basically do what's good for the common good as opposed to ourselves. And then there's also the hypocrisy. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Sorry, David. I got to just intervene there and just quickly say, uh, in fairness, Britain, from where I, <laughs> where I was born, um, they're in on this too, and they left the uh, European Union. You're, you're exactly right. But remember, listen, I had high hope. I mean, I thought Sunak was going to step away from this. But I think in some sense, he inherited a policy that was laid down by trust. And trust was the biggest hawk of them all. Right. I mean, trust was the one that wanted to tear up things with China. Trust was the one was going to basically take it all the way to basically Russia. Right. Trust was a complete disaster. We now know, even in Britain, people know. I'm, by the way, also a British citizen. I lived here for 10 years. My heart goes out to the Brits. And there is no doubt that I don't know if it's Ben Wallace, who is now down. But Sunak, I somehow don't think that if he had been on his own, if he had been, things that might have been very different. It was Boris Johnson. And I think, again, Boris Johnson, I think the guy turned out to be a complete disappointment. I can't believe I voted for him. I actually supported Brexit and so on and so forth. I think he... His father's been on the show. His father's been on the show quite a few times. You know, it kills me because, you know, if you think about this, right? Brexit, what does Brexit really mean? The reason why I was for Brexit was because I thought Britain, by leaving the European Union, can chart its own course. English, I mean, the British civilization is the most successful civilization on the planet, right? I mean, everybody's speaking English, English culture, everybody reads Shakespeare, and not basically Tolstoy these days. But the point here is this, right? For Britain to fully profit from the exit from Britain, from basically EU, it has to make friends with the whole entire world. Now, just think about this. The irony is that three years after Brexit, the U.S., U.K.'s supposedly best ally has not even so far given the U.K. a free trade agreement. So the U.K., if you're leaving Europe and you haven't even got a free trade agreement from supposedly your best friend, you should be basically playing the role of the mediator. Because Brit British people, they travel the world, they have a global perspective, BBC, you know, so on and so forth. They should have basically taken advantage of this crisis and become the peace broker. And the fact that they haven't been this way, I think is a total, it's again, to me, is completely against any kind of reasonable, pragmatic policy for the good of British people. Again, I'm only interested, I'm not rooting for Russia or Ukraine or US, Europe. I'm rooting for the little guys. What I see is that the little guys in Britain, in the US, in Ukraine, in Russia are getting screwed big time by a bunch of incompetent policymakers, especially in Europe, that have not tried to stop the American madness to basically bring down Russia at all cost. Okay, but in fairness to the United States, you do say they are acting in a self-interested way. Seymour Hirsch has been on this show. People can watch our exclusive, global uh, exclusive uh, with him about Nord Stream. You, you believe that uh, it was 
if it is the USA, the CIA, and a self-interested act. I mean, if we put environmental concerns to one side, because it would have been, it was the largest uh, uh, methane emission event uh, in history, man, uh, man-made, and Joe Biden says he's environmental, uh, he's interested in the environment. But uh, this was a this was a brilliant strategy by the United States if it was them, in terms of economics. You know, we, we know this started with Kennedy. Kennedy actually got the NATO back in 1963 to basically adopt a sanction against Germany exporting pipes, gas pipes to the Soviet Union. <laughs> And then went out with Reagan. It went out with Obama, who was basically against, you know, basically, I mean, it was Bush, who was against basic construction of Nord Stream 1. And Obama was against the Nord Stream 2. And then Biden basically, of course, said that, you know, I, I think I think we know what Biden did. I have no doubt that, you know, because again, you know, I, I don't know who did it, who didn't. All I know is that in order for a crime to be committed, there has to be a motive. The only country in the entire planet that has a motive to destroy Nord Stream is, of course, the U.S., because it is the best way to basically destroy any chance that Europe is going to negotiate with Russia. Because the U.S. was trying to destroy the one piece of leverage that Russia might have on Europe that might cause the Europeans to think more sensibly about what they're going to do. The U.S. just took that away, destroyed, so there was no turning back for the Europeans. Dr. David Wu, I'll stop you there. More from the former Wall Street strategist and IMF economist after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Dr. David Wu, former Wall Street strategist and IMF economist. Uh, David, you, we were talking in part one about uh, the United States' uh, master plan here and uh, its master strokes. As to uh, how long Europe can continue to uh, commit economic suicide, arguably, do you think it will be up to civil unrest? I mean, we saw some civil unrest across the whole of France. In Switzerland, we've seen some. Rome this week. Holland. Uh, otherwise, uh, we haven't really seen anything by the people of Europe, apart from expressing uh, distaste for their leaders' uh, positions on uh, the uh, falling living standards because of the war in Europe. Uh, what is going to make them change? Higher interest rates. You know, it's interesting because people say, oh, wow, why, you know, you know, because, I mean, seriously, a year ago, I was predicting that by now Europe should be in a basically deep recession. It hasn't gone into that recession. You know why? Because Europe has been unleashing massive fiscal stimulus through the whole system. And that stimulus, okay, we're talking about subsidizing energy, subsidizing consumption, all that kind of stuff. That, no doubt, was the reason why the European economy actually outgrew the U.S. economy in 2022. But this stimulus continues through 2023. So from that point of view, I would argue so far the Europeans haven't really felt the pain. Okay? The, what, we're seeing, what we're talking about right now, what I'm talking about right now is long-term pain that has yet to come, by the way. What you're going to see is a wholesale, basically, like, literally people being let go, laid off in Germany, where people are going to basically, you know, essentially go into protests, demonstrations, so on and so forth. But what I'm saying this is, is that this is why I think next year is interesting. But meanwhile, you see, this is the interesting thing. What I don't understand is this. You know, you say, well, democracy. Right now, it's very clear. If you follow German opinion polls, they're painting a clear, okay, division between people who want to continue to support Ukraine and people who don't want to continue to 
support Ukraine who think that Germany is committing total suicide. What is actually going on right now? I kind of feel like they are basically deciding, you know what? The next election is not going to be for another two more years. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen between now and two years' time? Who knows by then Russia might have been defeated and so on and so forth. So as a result, both Macron and Schultz are behaving as though public opinion doesn't matter. They are behaving as though that everything is just hunky-dory. They are basically doubling down. They're basically telling, they're sending weapons, whatever. I mean, the, the, the French are starting to send basically cruise missiles directly to Ukraine. It's almost as though they feel like, okay, fine, I lost the first round. Okay. The only chance now is that I'm going to double down. Now, I guess for Macron, he can't run for a third term. So who cares as far as he's concerned? That's the problem. This is why I actually think what this entire saga is showing us is the weakness of our democratic systems. This is to say that Russia and China have better political systems, okay, in terms of decision making. But there is no doubt that democracy is failing the Europeans in a very big way. I, sh I should say Russia and China, Russia and China say they are democratic, of course, in, in different ways. Russia's elections have been uh, uh, independently checked. But I, surely it's your fault in a way, David, because you were at the IMF between 96 and 2000. And the only lever these European governments have under deregulated markets is interest rates to curb inflation. It's your fault for uh, the way the economies are now set up with their uh, European Central Bank, the Bank of England. They don't have any other methods of being able to uh, uh, look at the economy in a different way as regards strategic investment. I, I, I'm, I'm for higher interest rates. And the only reason why I'm for higher interest rates is that I think it would be you know, a tragedy. <laughs> If we see basically what happened in the 1970s, making a major comeback, especially in a country like the UK, which I really care for, by the way. Okay. You have to remember, like it was Thatcher that literally the upheaval, the crackdown, the whole entire thing to bring down inflation expectations. So from that point of view, like if you could argue that there was one thing that Western economies accomplished in the last 30 years, also, thanks to basically globalization, the integration of China in the global economy, which helped drive down inflation, you know, what they really successfully managed to do was bring down basically inflation, which allowed them to bring down interest rates. Now, you know, UK with inflation at those these levels, in Europe, core inflation is still basically very high above 5%. If this inflation level remains, let's just say, for example, we now have a major Russian offensive in the next month, which is my prediction, okay? I think oil prices are gonna go sky high. I think that basically we could see literally natural gas price going right back up, okay? In Europe, this basically winter. If we see a repeat in the next, whatever, three to six months, like what we saw like last year, I'm telling you the inflation genie will be impossible to put back in the bottle. Then you're gonna be talking about stagflation. Stagflation is even worse than recession, by the way. OK, well, because well, in the recession, you can bring down interest rates in a stagflation. You can't even bring down interest rates because then the inflation is going to go up even more. OK, we so saw that we saw the, the worst debt figures from Britain since 1961 as a proportion of uh, GDP. We see Germany in recession. How carefully, given the BRICS summit is coming up, how carefully do global South countries have uh, uh, have to uh, be when it comes to divesting themselves of debt, European debt? And, uh, 
and America debt then, uh, given that you're portraying a kind of catastrophe in NATO countries' economies? Because obviously they can't just sell it now. They can't sell it right. all now. China's been selling it gradually, about 800 uh, billion now. Um, yes. How carefully do they have to do that? First of all, I, I, not that much and not that fast, by the way. And, and, and that, well, they can't do it fast, clearly. Yet. I'm not that worried about the U.S. dollar yet. Because first of all, the U.S. is the big winner out of this, right? I mean, the U.S. is, you know, basically using Europe to basically, uh, to basically, uh, to stop Russia and even China, right? Because I mean, listen, I mean, I mean, China was basically is still Germany's largest export market after outside Europe, and not the U.S. By the way, and what's happening? <laughs> even though they're a the kind US of war with each other, or about to be. <laughs> Right, exactly. But the point, so, so the U.S. is still looking pretty. Now, but what we have to understand about the Global South is, first of all, the Global South as a group, we're talking about now China, Brazil, Russia, India, and basically the rest of them, they've run on the whole an aggregate trade surplus. In other words, that they are net, net savers, which means that they have to invest their money something else outside the block. Right now, honestly, if you are... Indian businessman, okay? You just basically sold some stuff to basically Russia. Are you happy to sit on the Russian ruble? Would you ever Chinese businessman be interested in basically sitting on the Indian rupee? Probably not, I can guarantee you probably not. One thing is to basically make payments using a brick currency. Another thing is to keep your hard earned savings and investment in bricks, basically Athens. There's a reason why the dollar is, is where it is right now. The U.S. stock market has been the best performing stock market in the world in the last 10 years. Okay? This is, there's no other market that even comes close. The Chinese stock market has been one of the worst 20 years, actually. It, despite the fact Chinese economy has been growing, the Chinese stock market has been terrible. Terrible because Chinese companies are not very profitable. And then because that... Country is still well, being that, run. That's by arguable. Plan. It could be the different system as to how investment is made, uh, as as apart from the printing of money, which has happened in the United States since the Western economic crisis. I, I mean, you make the point in your video about the uh, the dollar, but how, don't sanctions change all of that? I mean, given that uh, you say you know the the New York Stock Exchange has done very well. But the point was the dollar is fungible. You can sell it. You can buy it everywhere. It's uh, don't sanctions change that? For the first time, people around the world suddenly realize it's not safe to have dollars stored because your country, whether it be in Latin America, Central America, or Africa, or Southeast Asia, if if you politically take the wrong path, as uh, the State Department sees it, you you can be sanctioned. You can lose the money. You can have third party sanctions. It's not a great currency after all. Sure. This is why, you know what, other than the dollar, the question is where are you going to basically park your currency? You can, the Japanese and the Europeans are in the, uh, are in cahoots with the U.S. So it's like if your money is going to get confiscated by the U.S., it's going to be confiscated by Europe and Japan as well. So what you're left with is investing each other, and there are lots of problems with that, as we said before, right? For one thing, you have to accept lower returns. Now, however, that said, I do think there is one asset that will do every, that will outperform everything else. That has to be gold. Right? In the end, there's only gold, and there's gonna be physical gold. Like, this is why I have no doubt. Like, the reason why gold prices held up very high despite the sell off in bonds, because normally when interest rates go up, 
you know, gold prices go down because gold doesn't pay interest. So that's why interest rates go up, gold price goes down. You know, in the last year, it's pretty remarkable. The interest rate's been going up, but gold is still very, very hot. Okay, I can, I can, hear, I can almost hear the cryptocurrency banks. traders right now complaining that you're, uh, you're forgetting another, uh, another way out of, out of all of that. But, um, uh, but uh, why, why do you think it is then that there is this uh, group think uh, um, in think tanks, amongst journalists, in the media, and amongst leaders, let alone politicians then in NATO countries, that think uh, everything is going to be is is going to go the way they want it to be uh, to go, and that uh, the dollar's still there, and sanctions are a useful weapon. I mean, why did everyone think that sanctions were going to work against Russia? I just want to say this, you know, like what, if you get down to the brass tacks, why the dollar is so strong, despite all the problems the U.S. faces, is because, you know. Apple is a U.S. company. Facebook is a U.S. company. Google is a Facebook. It's a, com it's a, it's a U.S. company. And Microsoft. I don't have to tell you today these the so-called basically magnificent seven. Now it comes with twenty-five percent of market capitalization of S and P five hundred. These companies are monopolies. They're global monopolies. This is why, by the way, the U.S. Foreign policy is being conducted to allow these companies continue to basically maintain their monopolies. What is really going on is that the whole entire world, especially Europe and the allies, are paying this heavy tax to the U.S. every year in the form of basically what revenue to these basically U.S. tech monopolies that have become also, meanwhile, the biggest donors to the Democratic Party that basically use everything they got to help basically Democrats secure the 2020 election in the midterm. But that is why the dollar is so strong. I think the most important things happened in the last three months in the market is the fact that Ukrainian government debt has gone up 50%. I'm talking about price appreciation. If you go out to basically buy a Ukrainian government bond maturing in 2041, that baby's gone up 50%. That thing has outperformed everything, including all the big tech monopolies. And the reason is because more and more people are thinking, oh, well, Ukraine is going to kick Russia's ass. Biden said that Ukraine, that Putin has already lost the war. Or that, by the way, investors may be thinking that, you know, maybe, you know, as the U.S. gets dragged deeper and deeper into Ukraine, Ukraine's problem becomes America's problem. Maybe the U.S. taxpayer is going to be on the hook for Ukraine, government debt and liabilities and everything else. I actually think that the next few weeks, you will see the Ukrainian basically counteroffensive run its course. I think the Russians, what has really impressed me, again, this is not about me being pro-Russia or pro-Ukraine, just as an objective observer, looking at the basically battlefield, the Russians are constantly learning from their mistakes. If you look at the development of new weapons, the Lancer drones, the KA-52 basically helicopters, you're talking about basically the Su-34, I mean, you're talking about the night vision goggle. The Russian basically military technology has been literally like going through a revolution every three months. The Russians are now fighting with weapons that they didn't have 18 months ago because they didn't exist 18 months ago. And that to me is the most impressive thing. This is the reason why, whereas the West is still walking around the same circle, Russia is getting better and better. And this war is going to be won by technology in the end. Because I know the Ukrainians are good fighters. They are fearless. They're patriotic. They're just going on these suicide missions. But in the end, I think technology is going to win and Russia is going to basically crush them. If Russia crushes basically Ukraine, 
that will be the end of the American hegemony as we know. Dr. David Wu, thank you. Thank you. That's it for the show. More economics and the impact of the war in Europe on Monday with renowned professor Michael Hudson to discuss his new book on debt, The Collapse of Antiquity. But until then, keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Monday.